Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, stay tuned, listeners. Happy New Year. Before we get started with the first episode of 2019, I have a quick favor to ask. In order to support our show, we need the ongoing help of our advertisers. And in order to find more great advertisers, we'll need to learn a little bit more about who's listening to Stay Tuned. So please go to podsurvey.com preet and take a quick and completely anonymous survey. Once you've completed the survey, you can choose to enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash preet, P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y dot com slash P-R-E-E-T. Thanks for your help. Now here's the show. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. We wargamed out for years what it would look like if a rogue nation state overseas tried to attack the United States through cyber means. And we all got it wrong. We, we never thought it would be about a movie about a bunch of pot smokers. That's John Carlin. He's the author of a new book, Dawn of the Code War, America's Battle Against Russia, China, and the Rising Global Cyber Threat. He served in the Department of Justice during President Obama's second term and as chief of staff to then-FBI director Robert Mueller. I speak with him about who's behind the cyber attacks on commerce and elections, what's motivating them, and what the cyber threat means for all of us. But first, let's get to your questions. That's coming up. Stay tuned. A new Congress is taking over, and lawmakers promise a full slate of investigations into the Trump administration. Mueller's investigation into the Trump campaign is ongoing. There are inquiries into Trump's businesses and his inaugural committee. The Trump Foundation has been shuttered in response to charges brought by the New York Attorney General. The news is not going to stop, nor are we. That's why we launched Cafe Insider, to help make sense of what's happening in the country. And we're bringing you more real-time, in-depth analysis in the form of new podcasts, a weekly newsletter, text alerts, and more. On the Cafe Insider podcast, Ann Milgram and I take stock of what's happening as we process the latest headlines. To listen to the Insider podcast and experience the rest of Cafe Insider, become a member at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. Okay, let's get to your questions. Hi, Preet. This is Jeff from Asheville. I've got a couple questions for you. First is, are you concerned that House Democrats can run effective investigations when they take power in January? Second would be, would it be unusual to bring in an outside investigator or prosecutor to lead an investigation? And then thirdly, would it be in the interest of Democrats to assign a prosecutor to lead committee question instead of the haphazard political grandstanding that I expect We'll see. Oh, and then a a last quick question. Would you want the job? Take care, and thank you for all your uh, hard work. Uh, Jeff, thanks for the question. I think that's really an important query for everyone as we get into 2019. And, you know, I have concerns, as you always do, when people who are elected officials, who are by definition politicians, run investigations because they are by nature and by, you know, sort of the intent of the founders bound up with politics, unlike the old job that I used to do and tens of thousands of people still do, which is to be completely apolitical. If you are a, an avowed Democrat or an avowed Republican, uh, it's much more difficult to separate out politics. 
but you can still run effective investigations that can get bipartisan support and that can save the country from waste, fraud, and abuse and can expose wrongdoing and can cause reforms to be taken in whatever industry or agency they choose to search around in. So you know, the, the three principal chairmen you're going to be hearing a lot about and from are Adam Schiff at Intelligence, Jerry Nadler on Judiciary, and Elijah Cummings at House Government Oversight. Uh, and there may also be others like Maxine Waters on Financial Services. I think there have been letters that have already been sent to various agencies suggesting that they want answers to particular questions or they want old questions answered that never have been answered or that they're opening up new lines of inquiry. Adam Schiff, in particular, I think is someone to watch. And I'm going to show my parochial bias here. And I mean, no offense and disparagement to the other chairs who are taking the gavel. But Adam Schiff, I think, has a mild advantage, or maybe not so mild, over various of the other chairmen who are going to be leading investigations and oversight. And that is, he used to be an assistant U.S. attorney. And so he has tried cases. He has examined people. He has cross-examined people. He has poured through documents himself. Then he did it in an apolitical way when he was an assistant U.S. attorney. And from what I've seen from how he speaks about things, he's still fairly common measure. He doesn't, you know, I don't think he'll be pounding the gavel in a way that'll break anyone's eardrums, but he'll be thoughtful and meticulous. So I look forward to seeing what he has on his plate coming up. I think one thing people have to be careful about, if you're undertaking these investigations, you have to pick your spots. You know, I had a massive operation of 200 some odd assistant U.S. attorneys. And so we could delve into money laundering, public corruption, gang activity, terrorism, bank fraud, you name it, we had resources. And on top of that, we had you know fairly large resources in connection with our partners at the FBI or the NYPD or the DEA. Even a chairman of a House committee has pretty limited resources. You'll have a small staff of folks. They can't really rely on outside law enforcement agencies, right? So they can't do everything. They can do some things and they can do them pretty well. But based on my experience running an investigation for the Senate Judiciary Committee into a politicization of the Justice Department back in 2007, if you pick your spots, you're upfront about what you're asking for. You make decisions about what you make public in an appropriate way. You negotiate with the administration in good faith about what documents you think should be provided. You have decent arguments for what should not be privileged and withheld from the committee. If you do it in a way that's logical, you start you know, relatively small and find openings to lead you to places where you think wrongdoing has occurred. You don't grandstand. You talk about the investigation factually. You don't gild the lily and you show the public what you're finding, I think you will have support. And that's what gives sort of oxygen, I think, to ongoing investigations. It also will be useful for these investigations, many of them, to be very clearly apolitical. In other words, looking at places where there's just rank abuse and fraud and corruption, whether you're talking about what Ryan Zinke was doing at the Department of the Interior, who was in some ways spared by getting out of office before these chairmen come in, or you're talking about Tom Price's you know, exorbitant travel those abuses are not partisan. You know, and if those abuses happened, and they have in the past, not to this degree, under Democratic administrations, that should be exposed. And that makes people's blood boil. My firm view is people should be careful, thoughtful, measured, but also aggressive. But I think if people keep their head down and they hire good staff, they can get the job done. Do I want the job? I haven't been asked. And I have a podcast. Hi, Pre. This is Tony Mills from Atlanta, Georgia. Love your show, and I have a 99% success rate in recommending it to others. The last constitutional amendment was the 27th Amendment passed over a quarter century ago. Our founding fathers were brilliant in designing our system of governance and putting in place various checks and balances that would protect against a situation where a dangerous person found his or her way into the White House. My question, Preet, is when do you think another constitutional amendment will be considered and passed? Perhaps one that puts additional limits on the executive branch, Thanks, Preet. Uh, Tony, thanks for your question. So you're right. Constitutional amendments are rare. They're supposed to be rare. They're among the hardest things that we do to change the law in this country. But it happens from time to time. And the example that I like to give in connection with my work with the Brennan Center and with Governor Christy Todd Whitman on the Democracy Task Force is the example of FDR, who was a very popular president, who decided to violate the tradition and norm set by our first president, George Washington, who decided, I don't want to be a king he could have been elected to three terms, four and more, if he lived long enough, but decided to step down after two. And every other president did the same until FDR. And even though FDR was extremely popular president, remains extremely popular, we did the most difficult thing that there is to do, as I've mentioned, amend the Constitution to prevent a future president, who may not have been as, as good as FDR, depending on your viewpoint, from ever being able to do that again. And so I'm not trying to dodge your question, but it depends on what abuses we see, how severe they are, 
and there may be implications for the Constitution. And the one that I've been thinking about in connection with the Democracy Task Force, but it depends on how things play out. If nothing further happens with respect to Donald Trump's pardon power, probably we don't see any change there. But you could imagine a scenario, which I hope we don't see, because this would mean we're really sort of in a mess. If Donald Trump decides to pardon relatives of his, business associates of his, and if it looks like he's doing it to prevent them from talking, or if he tries, as he said, he has the right to do, which most people dispute, the right to pardon himself, I think you will see a very serious effort to restrict the pardon power going forward. But that all depends on what Donald Trump does. And I have said for a long time, I think Donald Trump is capable of anything when he gets really angry and his back is up against the wall. There's also been talk, although I haven't looked very closely at it, at the uh, sort of long-simmering ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. And I think, you know, as we think about equality and as we see more women get elected to the House and to the Senate, maybe that's a possibility. So I'm not placing any huge wagers on either of those, but but those are the two that have been in my mind lately. Pre, Hey, it's Matt Allward from Louisville, Kentucky. I just want to first off say uh, your podcast is fantastic, and I greatly appreciate uh, everything you've done and continue to do for the greater good. Uh, I have a broad question, uh, so bear with me. Um, when Donald Trump was elected, he was considered to be uh, a political outsider, and that was pretty fundamental in his overall appeal. Uh, he also yells fake news, undermines the fourth estate, and tries to create his own sets of facts that his base and Fox News really takes and runs with. So uh, my question is, what do you think is impacted the most after his presidency or after he leaves office? Do you think it's the presidency itself? or the way American society views the fourth estate and what we know is truth. Thanks, Preet, and I'll stay tuned. Matt! Thanks for your question. Do I know you? You seem very familiar with me. Anyway, that, that's a very broad question. And, you know, I don't know that we know the answer to that yet. We're not even halfway through the administration. The things that have upset lots of people deeply, myself included, are you know, not any particular policy prescriptions, and he's had a lot of bad ones not any particular laws that he's proposed necessarily, whether they get passed or don't get passed, because you can undo those things. Um, I think the unleashing of hatred, the playing to people who want to divide us, undermining faith and confidence in institutions, all of which deserve scrutiny and all of which deserve to be assessed and criticized robustly. That includes the press, that includes the courts, that includes the Justice Department, that includes the FBI. But when you do it in a cynical way, based only on whether that institution, organization, or human is on your side or not on your side, and completely divorced from principle, I think that causes a corrosive effect on how lots and lots of people see the country. You know, that, that simple phrase, fake news, he doesn't have to take a particular action against a media organization, or even if he does, if he, if he takes away the press pass of Jim Acosta, of CNN, or someone else, again, those are passing things. What is not a passing thing is to have coined a phrase that is now used in lots of other places including by despots who imprison and do worse things to journalists. And they get away with it because they can cite the leader of the free world. So that, that's a soft, sort of amorphous thing to complain about, but it's as important as anything else because it goes to values. And I think, I think there's been an undermining of values that is accelerated in a way under this president that worries me a lot. I have a lot of other things I could say about that, but, but that's my main concern. And that's harder to undo. My guest this week is John Carlin. He's the author of a new book, Dawn of the Code War, America's Battle Against Russia, China, and the Rising Global Cyber Threat. He was the Assistant Attorney General for the National Security Division at the Department of Justice during President Obama's second term. He also served as Chief of Staff and Senior Counsel to then-FBI Director Robert Mueller from 2009 to 2011. Now he's a partner at Morrison & Forrester and leads the Cybersecurity Group at the Aspen Institute. He spoke with me from his office in D.C. about China's digital attacks on commerce, Russia's digital attacks on elections, and what the cyber threat means for all of us. One quick note, this interview was recorded before DOJ unsealed significant state-sponsored cyber charges against two Chinese nationals. That's coming up. Stay tuned. John Carlin, great to have you on the show. Great to be on. So we go back a ways. We've been friends for, we should state on the record that we are at least I consider you to be a friend. I don't know if you consider me to be a friend. It's nice to be talking to you on the phone and there's not some crisis in the background. Yes. You know, it's kind of mellow now, but uh, you have, um, 
had a lot of jobs, and we're going to get to various aspects of those jobs and how they relate to this book you've written, which is called Dawn of the Code War. I see what you did there. That's a play. That's a play <laughs> on... That, did you? No, it was very clever. Did you come up with that? Yeah, yeah we were trying to... Um, we. Do uh, an analogy. I'm used to saying we in all contexts. <laughs> As you know, so writing a book's been a little different and trying to use the word I on occasion and uh, ignore the training that Mueller gave me. They want, there is no I in, uh, in, in government team. work or talking There's about. There's no I in team. That's the, how the, I think the phrase goes. So it's called Dawn of the Code War. The subtitle is America's Battle Against Russia, China, and the Rising Global Cyber Threat. So congratulations on the book. It's it's more pages than the book I just wrote. So congratulations on that also. You didn't get paid by the word, did you? No, a lot of ground to cover, though. And as you know, having seen many of these firsthand, there's incredible stories. One thing I've realized, particularly being out of government and talking to people in the private sector, is how few people know about cases that they think are science fiction and things that nation states or terrorists might do that have already happened. So let's talk about some of these things, and maybe let's go back to the premise of your the title of the book, Kidding Aside, Dawn of the Code War, I'm guessing, from having looked at the book, is a play on the Cold War. How are those things similar? We're not in an armed conflict, uh, a traditional armed conflict, or even one recognized under international law. But we are experiencing low-intensity conflict day in, day out that's causing real harm to real victims. And just like the Cold War, it's going to require concerted leadership across the Western world, and particularly from America, to confront our adversaries in a war that's going to require both winning the battle on whose values should prevail, but also spending the resources technically and otherwise to ensure that our businesses, our society is safe from what is already day-to-day combat that's occurring. So when you're comparing the Cold War to the cyber threat, which you talk about as the Code War, is is a part of what's happening now also an arms race like there was in the Cold War? It's not directly analogous, but there are some lessons that you can apply. So like parts of the Cold War, there are types of technology that we need to win. So I think about 5G, for instance, this is the new way that our cities, our cars, our drones, and the Internet of Things is going to be able to connect is going to be based on this wireless standard of 5G. And who controls that standard, what values lie behind it are going to be critical to our safety going forward. I want to talk a little bit about how we got to this point, not just how we got to the point where there were sort of outright cyber attacks that nation states are sponsoring against the United States and other countries against each other, but relatedly, uh, how we got to the point where people at the top of government care so much about this. And I don't know what your experience has been, both at the FBI and then at the Department of Justice, but when I began as U.S. attorney, and you and I have spent a lot of time talking about cyber and overseeing cyber cases, but when I began in August of 2009, the level of attention that our government was paying to the cyber threat was, I think, beginning to increase, but it wasn't that high. My recollection is that in New York, there was only one squad of the FBI that was focused on cyber, and you had a lot of squads that were focused on La Cosa Nostra, you know, Italian organized crime. And then over the course of the next five, six, seven years, in our office, we went from sort of one person who was expert on all this stuff to having more than 10. And the cyber squads began to proliferate at the FBI, both in New York and around the country, and lots of other U.S. attorney's offices gained expertise in this. You started having people as high up as the Treasury Secretary, who usually didn't get involved in these things, not just the FBI director, and also the President of the United States talking about cyber. Explain how you think the government's response has changed over time and and how aware we are of the threat, even if we're not fully prepared for it. So I was a line prosecutor doing computer hacking, intellectual property cases and specializing them. And as late as, say, 06, 2006, going into 2007, I would work with a squad at the FBI, and I worked with the criminal squad, and there was a lot to do on the criminal side of the house, but there was another squad, an intelligence squad, that was behind a lock-secured compartmented door, and I didn't had no idea what was going on behind that door. Occasionally, one of the agents would switch squads, and they just disappeared, never to be seen again. No <laughs> right. clue where they, what they were up to. They didn't give you a key to that door? 
they no key, no key for me. Actually, I'm trying to remember. I think it required a handprint, a handprint and a code, neither of which my hand did not work and <laughs> I did not have the code. But that changed eventually. It did change eventually. So after being on the line, I ended up, uh, I was coordinating the program nationally in 07, and I still did not have access to that door. So it wasn't really till I went over to the then director of the uh, FBI, Bob Mueller, when he was relatively anonymous uh, compared to his current gig, that I the door opened and I was given access to what was going on on the intelligence side of the house. And there was a secured facility where we could watch on a jumbotron screen in real time. They'd set up a visual so you could see China going into places like universities, hopping from the universities into American companies. And then we were literally watching a visual representation of billions of dollars worth of trade secrets, intellectual property flowing outside of the United States. And I think that's what caused the former director of the National Security Agency at the time, Keith Alexander, to call it the largest transfer of wealth in human history. So I think you're right. When you came on in 2009, the, the change was starting to take place, but to say, hey, if this is what we're seeing on the intelligence side, we got to start being able to talk about this publicly. And it wasn't until 20, I think 11, going into 2012, that as a public official, we were allowed to say that China was committing economic espionage through cyber-enabled means on this vast scale. So people could understand the urgency of the threat that we were facing. Can I push you on that for a second? Because I remember thinking in 2009 and 10 that we weren't talking as much about China as we should. And I get that part of that was a function of some of this being on the other side of the wall, you know, the classified wall. But it seems to me that a lot of people who were in business and in industry knew that the Chinese were stealing intellectual property. And there were political reasons why people may not have wanted to blame the Chinese and also financial reasons. And I had somebody once said to me about CEOs who decided to do business in China, that they understood, you know, you go to China and you open up, you know, some kind of plant and you could make $4 billion, let's say, hypothetically, from this new business you've started in China. And you knew that the Chinese were engaging in, as part of their great transfer of wealth to themselves, intellectual property theft to a huge degree. And they were taking maybe, you know, siphoning off in terms of value, $2 billion. You would think that someone would get very mad about that, but you know what? They're still making $2 billion. And it seemed to me that there was not a lot of will to call out the Chinese, not just that some of it was behind that wall. One of the stories that I tell in the book was going to meet with general counsel who had exactly that point of view. And they said, and they, they were actually somewhat frustrated by it, but they, they had actually done a study that showed, so they projected out, you know, they were a well-run uh, company. They projected out, here's the period of time we're going to remain in the black in China, so we're going to be making profits, but we can see, we can foresee five to 10 years out, there's going to be a total flip. We'll be way in the red, and because they've stolen our intellectual property and we'll be able to produce this in country, that it's going to devastate our business into the future. But right now, we don't want you to take any action. It was one of the more frustrating conversations I had as a government official. So it's like a short-term profit thing. Yeah, and but I do think it's linked, just to go back to what we were keeping private, they knew there was a risk, but what they weren't seeing was the government, the Chinese government-driven strategy where tactically part of that strategy was stealing this intellectual property or trade secrets, but that their long-term plan, and now people refer to it as the Made in China 2025 plan, which is public, was not to do continue to do business competitively in, with uh, companies overseas, but it was to create the capacity in-house and then crush every other company in the world so that there was no competition. Right. We've been talking a little bit abstractly. Give us an example or two, if you can, of what the Chinese would do and what the consequence was in a concrete way. Yeah. So as we were doing this transformation in government, so we opened the door, we watched that great intelligence feed of the information flowing out, and then we decided that this can't stand. What can we do to change it? And that led to the first case of its kind, the indictment of five members of the People's Liberation Army. And this was a specialized unit, uh, Unit 61398. And their day job, when they went uh, put on their uniform and went to work as a uniform member of the army, was to hack into the private competitors 
of Chinese companies overseas. So we saw things like Westinghouse was about to do a joint venture with a Chinese company. And the night before they were going to lease a lead pipe, we watched these Chinese members of the military go in and steal the technical design specifications for the pipe. So the next day, they don't need to pay. Or to use uh, another example, this was a U.S. subsidiary of a German multinational company, a solar company, Solar World. What the Chinese uh, military did here was they went into the email. And, you know, that's the least protected part of the system usually, right? It's not like the intellectual property, which might be encrypted or you take other special measures to protect. It's just general email traffic. They stole the email traffic to figure out exactly what the price point would be to cause the most harm. And then they price dumped. So they placed their product right below the price point that they knew would cause the most pain. And it worked. They forced that solar company into bankruptcy. And then, you know, as lawyers, to add insult to injury, when that company sued for unfair trade practices, they stole the whole litigation strategy <laughs> too. Yeah. Um, so, and this is why we did the novel approach of bringing a case, even though they were uniformed members of another military, because this was not traditional national security secrets, right? This was just theft, pure and simple. And it reminds me of a, uh, another case, just giving details, where this wasn't um, cyber-enabled espionage. This, this involved uh, an insider. But they literally stole this formula for titanium dioxide which sounds fancy, but actually was the formula for the color white, including the color white in the middle of an Oreo cookie. And as much as I like the Oreo cookie, that is not a state secret or national security. So when we say they were stealing everything, I mean, literally, they were stealing the color white. <laughs> right. A question that listeners might have as they're hearing these dramatic stories, if you were watching this in real time, how come you couldn't stop it? I think for a long period of time, there was an assumption that you could treat this like a traditional spy versus spy issue. You brought some of these cases when you were U.S. attorney, but when it came to the Cold War rather than the Code War, the strategy was often to watch espionage agents, to watch spies inside the United States for years and years and years without disrupting. The idea was this was relatively small scale and sophisticated. You could watch the spies operate, and then, like you did in the case of the uh, Russian illegals, eventually you could disrupt. But in the interim, you learn about how they operate and you could feed them false information. And that was partly the mindset behind how we were observing nation state cyber activity. The problem is just it was so large and on such a scale that it was causing real damage to real victims now it wasn't traditional intelligence collection. So you can in some instances, and I think there has been a change of approach to get out proactively warn companies so they can take immediate measures to stop this activity while it's occurring. And there's a real loss. You know, you'll hear from Intel specialists now that their lives are more difficult because we've made public some of the tradecraft of our adversaries, which means our adversaries overseas are getting better at what they do. I just think the benefits outweigh the losses there because it, the fact that they have to improve their tradecraft means fewer companies are getting hit. I mean, sometimes I think about, you know, imagine what our own services could do, right? Like the National Security Agency, if they didn't have to care at all about getting caught. Two questions related to each other. One is, shouldn't we be angrier about China? And two, is China the worst transgressor in the cyber area? And I remember a study, you might recall the details better, that was brought into my office by uh, my chief cyber person that attempted to track sort of all the nefarious cyber activity happening at any given time in the world. And there was a dip in the nefarious cyber activity on a particular day. And the only thing interesting about that, and it was a very significant dip. I don't remember the percentage, but like you know, 30 or 40% less on a particular day. And it turned out that was a Chinese national holiday. <laughs> yeah. So it doesn't take rocket science to, to do that graph. Are the Chinese the worst? Backing up because you reminded me of uh, another part of that case. So we brought the first case against the People's Liberation Army was we put an attachment on that case that showed this was activity that's that peaked around uh, 9 a.m., stayed high from 9 a.m. to noon. Apparently, they take a lunch break because it should right. decrease slightly from 12 to 1 Beijing time, increased again from 1 to 6, decreased right. overnight and on Chinese holidays. And I think both of us as former prosecutors will call that great circumstantial evidence as to who did it. But it also shows, again, that this was the, the day job of the second largest military in the world. 
there's no way private companies are going to be able to defend themselves against that type of resources. And we shouldn't blame them when they successfully get into a private company. Instead, it's got to be the responsibility of the government to try to send a strong message that that's not an acceptable way to use your military or intelligence. So the Chinese are the worst? I don't think the Chinese are are the worst, though. And it kind of depends on how you describe it. We talk about four major adversaries in cyberspace, Russia, North Korea, Iran, and China. And they all have different attributes. So when it comes to economic espionage and intellectual property theft by volume and capability, I would say China is the worst or does the most economic damage. And would you say that they're, with respect to economic damage, the worst by far? Worst in terms of like theft of intellectual property that could be used by viable companies against you. That threat is really a Chinese threat. You know, an actor like Russia has been doing things that cause indiscriminate damage to companies. So it's it's not giving them financial gain. It's just causing harm. And so I think of a threat like a ransom worm, not Petya, that was unleashed against Ukraine and then spread all around the world causing $500 million worth of damage to Maersk shipping alone, $300 million worth of damage to FedEx and other companies around the world. That type of disruptive activity could have been even worse and in some ways is a greater immediate threat because both with Russia and North Korea, who unleashed a similar uh, ransom worm called WannaCry, they seem to not care about causing indiscriminate damage, whereas China is trying to steal strategically, but ultimately compete in the same economic system. Right. They're being, they're being utilitarian and they're trying to help their own companies. M- one more question about China before we move on to these other countries. How much concern should average consumers have? So you know, separate and apart from the big corporate concerns, if there are Chinese manufacturers who are involved in the making of any product, particularly an electronic product, that they are doing nefarious things in the supply chain there by putting in backdoors so they can steal information and or recording devices and surveillance type techniques into products that people have in their homes on a regular basis. Is that outlandish or is that happening? No, it's not outlandish. I think it, it is happening. You're seeing that as a top concern of government officials now that the supply chain is being corrupted. Now that said, there's no internet connected system that's safe from a dedicated adversary who wants to get in. The technology just doesn't exist in government or in the private sector. So when you're determining how much of a threat there is against you, it's how much does anyone care about you? I'd be more worried about the very sophisticated, organized criminal enterprises that have risen up. That's where we're seeing people's uh, home devices get compromised. Sometimes, you know, from things ranging from, uh, using webcams to take naked pictures for extortion to using all of your devices to simultaneously send a request for information all at the same time, something called a botnet, an army of compromised computers. And because a site gets so much of that information at the same time, it crashes. And that was something we've already seen in in something called the Mirai botnet that actually took part of the internet down and turned out not to be a nefarious nation state overseas or even a a criminal uh, group, but some knuckleheaded kids out in Canada that were mad at other people that they did their video games with. Can we talk about North Korea before we get to Russia? And the reason I'd like to talk about North Korea, and you and I, I think, have talked about it. It wasn't my case. It was done out of the Central District of California, ultimately. But the famous Sony hack, where North Koreans were mad about a particular movie, broke into the Sony system, the computer system, and revealed emails that were sort of embarrassing. It was not the crime of the century in the sense that, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of intellectual property was stolen, like we've been talking about with the Chinese. And it wasn't the taking over of a hydroelectric dam that seems also possible in the current climate, or the stealing of people's money in their bank accounts, which is a terrible thing. It was kind of an embarrassment. And I have a couple of questions about that. One is, why was that such a huge deal in America? And I have a theory about it. And then second, what does it mean that a country that, you know, is trying to develop nuclear weapons doesn't have them yet, but is otherwise, as I understand it from various experts, like the, the total computing power of, I mean, I'm exaggerating here, of all sort of computers in, in North Korea is the sum total of like a Commodore VIC-20 from years <laughs> ago. And, you know, we can overstate 
their technological abilities. And theirs are from, again, what I understand from my time in office and otherwise, about their abilities, they're pretty low. And they were able to cause an entire huge multinational company great pain and panic, and then cause people in this country to be very worried about cyber intrusions because this was like sort of a, you know, it's the entertainment industry. It's not, it's not the making of devices. I think it upset people for a particular reason. What do you think about all that? First, I mean, I always think, and you and I participated in some, but we, we war-gamed out for year, years what it would look like if a rogue nation state overseas tried to attack the United States through cyber means. And we all got it wrong, right? We, we never thought it would be about a movie about a bunch of pot smokers. And... <laughs> I actually predicted that. You did? Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. I didn't tell anybody. <laughs> I didn't tell anybody about it. <laughs> Get to so I can't prove it now. It's the only time in my uh, career I had to go over to the Situation Room and brief the President of the United States you know, and start the briefing by trying to give a plot summary of the movie. <laughs> which... did, you, did, you, did you see the movie before the hack happened? No, I saw it because of the hack. And it was when, you know, every morning we'd go to meet with the uh, Attorney General and the FBI Director to go over the most serious threats of the day. And suddenly we had this you know, threat coming from a movie. So we all had to kind of watch it right over the Christmas holiday. Can you remind people of the movie? It's called The Interview, and it's about a bunch of uh, pot-smoking reporters who get involved in an assassination attempt on the leader of North Korea. And the leader of North Korea was not amused by the plot of that movie. Yeah, I'm sure he tried to do something more damaging than even the hack. But what did you learn in overseeing the response there? One thing I find interesting now, so when I talk to audiences all across the country, and ask what was the first major destructive attack, almost everyone says Sony, which I think is instructive because it was not the first destructive attack by foreign actors overseas. We had already seen Iranian attacks, denial of service attacks against our financial sector, and we had seen Iran unleash malware that essentially turned computers into bricks at the Sands Casino because they didn't like provocative things that the head of Sands Casino, Shelley Adelson, had said something about dropping a nuclear bomb on Iran and creating a huge dust cloud. They were not amused. And again, that was not, you know, we weren't expecting attacks on our gaming sector, right? We always thought that we, we had to worry about things like dams and the electrical grid or the finance system. But no one remembers that, that hack. Sony had three parts to it. So one, it was just as destructive attack using malware that turn computers into bricks. And that did cause real harm and fear among employees at the company. When you say turning computers into bricks, you just mean rendering them useless. Absolutely useless. That's right. So it's a type of malware that basically wipes the operating system of the computer. So you have the physical box, but it doesn't work. Okay. And they did that. And the second thing they did was steal intellectual property, right? And a rather large amount of intellectual property Again, something that people usually do worry about in this space, but not why people remember the Sony hack. So what worked so effectively in the Sony hack, and the reason people remember it, was the easiest thing to do, to your question, in terms of capability, which was break into an email system, just like China did with SolarWorld, to get pricing information. But here they just took emails, looked for what was salacious, right? Some good rumors, some good Hollywood gossip. Then they used non-traditional sites to push that information out. And then they watched, ironically, because this was an attack that was all about being opposed essentially to the First Amendment and trying to stop a movie because you don't like its content. Ironically, the press, the mainstream media did the damage for the North Korean regime by running endless stories about those emails. That's what caused the biggest harm to the brand of Sony. That's what they had to recover from. And that's why people remember the hack. So I think there's a couple of things you can learn from it. One is, and I wish we'd learned this lesson better, but that's the exact tradecraft than we see the Russians use in the election in right. 2016, where it's that weaponizing of information using attacks that aren't against critical infrastructure, but are attacks on a core value. In 2016, it's on our democracy. Here it was on the First Amendment and the right of free speech but to attack a core value. And second, and linked to that, almost all of our laws, our regulations, the way we were thinking about our response plan hinged around stuff. So we defined critical infrastructure and we did it around, importantly, and I'm not saying we should drop this, but around our financial sector, around the electrical grid. 
What we didn't focus on was attacks that are on our fundamental values, what it is to be an American like free speech or our electoral system. And I think you're seeing it a, a change now, but one we need to continue to accelerate to protect our values. So you mentioned the Russian hacks. How concerned should we be about Russian cyber attacks, in particular interference in the election, in ways that are beyond what we believe to have happened in 2016? I worry about Russia now is outside. The election attacks are one symptom of it. And there you see a regime that fundamentally fears democracy attacking not just in trying to undermine confidence, not just in our electoral system, but also that Russia is increasingly a rogue nation when it comes to cyber. We talked about not Petra earlier, so unleashing essentially cyber weapons of mass destruction without concern about who they may harm, just like they were poisoning people on the streets of the United Kingdom is the cyber equivalent. But also they are increasingly are blended with these criminal enterprises that are so sophisticated that they could really be a Fortune 500 company that are dedicated to nothing but stealing information from people and companies all across the world. And then they have a really sophisticated back end where they sell that which they steal. And we're talking about really brazen groups. Like one case discussed in the book is in Fraud We Trust. That was the actual motto of something that sounds like it's a meeting of the crime families, but it's all occurring online of some of the world's worst crooks at a internal site where they all shared information on how to be a better crook. And when you see takedowns, great work by U.S. attorney's offices with partners across the world, you catch people in almost every country, but in Russia, they, they won't cooperate at all and they allow these people to act without impunity. If that continues we're going to continue to see just devastating financial losses from crime. And not only are they shielding them, and this always you know, sticks in my craw, but the Yahoo case where over 500 million or so email accounts were compromised, that's a case where one of the defendants was on our most wanted list, on the FBI most wanted list as a cyber criminal. And we asked for Russian cooperation to lock him up after he uh, escaped after being arrested and fled to Russia. And not only did they not cooperate on someone who's was just, you know, his job was stealing credit card numbers, they signed him up as an intelligence asset right. after being asked to cooperate and tasked him. We've had all these cyber attacks and something that always seemed odd to me, and even though there was a lot of consternation about the Sony hack and, you know, all sorts of other, you know, theft of documents and personal information like the ones you've described and others that we haven't gotten to, it still is not the case that the public fully freaks out. Do you know what I mean? So you'll hear the, you'll, you'll yeah. hear the story, that, you know, <laughs> you know a, a gazillion government employees' information packets have been uh, stolen through cyber, and everyone gets sort of very upset. And occasionally a CEO will lose his or her job, and that's more recent and hasn't happened in, in, you know, too frequently. Why is it that, you know, people like you and I, when we were in office and you still, uh, and me to a lesser degree, worry about it, scream about it, politicians talk about it now, there are all these defenses that are being, that are being set up, but it doesn't really create the kind of wave of, of panic that might lead to better legislation or better protection that you might expect. Well, I have a couple different theories, but one, in this, uh, this time of year, I'm always thinking about them because it's around the an anniversary of one of the worst terrorist attacks at the time, uh, the, it was called Lockerbie bombing, bombing Pan Am 1-3. And when I went to the memorial uh, service, I think it was the 25th, I remember there were the architects of a report on aviation security that came out after that bombing and before September 11th that said, here's what we can learn and here's ways to make our airlines safer. And almost all of those suggestions were adopted after September 11th, almost immediately, but not before, even though we'd, we'd seen people die because of some of these security vulnerabilities. And, you know, it's devastating to listen to then when you're at the memorial service. And I think about it all the time in terms of cyber, of is there a way we can learn from that? Is there some way we can do a better job of getting people's attention now to take the necessary reforms before we see something of that type of devastating consequence. And this is a vital moment to act because, you know, when you think about it, 
over a 30 some year period, we moved almost everything we value from analog space, you know, books and papers to digital and connected it through this medium that was never secure. And as you pointed out earlier, for years, CEOs and government, you know, weren't really taking seriously or assessing the risks of making that move. And that's one thing we're playing catch up now. But we're about to connect the things. So things that will cause immediate life and death consequence. So that ranges from the pacemakers in people's hearts, where we literally have already designed, developed, and placed pacemakers in people's hearts without testing to see that they were secure by design. And then afterwards realized, oh, an 11-year-old using publicly available software can hack and kill. And then they rolled out a patch. Or, you know, at this point, over 70, 80% of cars on the road are already computers on wheels. And we've already had an instance where an enterprising reporter with a hacker showed you could get in through the entertainment system, take over the braking and steering system. And that led to the recall of 1.4 million already deployed cars on the road. So we have to figure out a way to ring that bell now. And that's partly why in the book, one thing I I just don't think people think it's science fiction attacks that have already happened. So we have to do a better job of showing what the harm is now. That's one. And two, and I'm no good at this. So let me, one of your listeners, are you have a better example is I'm always struck by, I met this guy who um, he's a reporter in this space, but he told me he was the fingers you know, if you ever see this, the, the visuals on CNN and they talk about a hacking case, they always show like a mysterious set of fingers on the <laughs> on keyboard. The, on the keyboard, yes. Yeah. So it was his fingers. And it was like a decade later and they still were using that scene. He'd switched and was doing a different job, but it was still his fingers. It's harder for people to, I think, see the concrete harm now because it's hard to visualize. Part of the problem, my theory is that to the extent there needs to be a congressional response, you know, legislative response, and I, I worked in the Senate, and you're very diplomatic, and you don't like to say bad things about people. But, you know, the, our Congress, changing a little bit, is pretty old and pretty out of touch with technology. And Lindsey Graham, among other people, you know, it's kind of cute, I guess, when he jokes about how he's never sent an email, which he now jokes, I think, and says he was ahead of his time, so he can't be hacked. How are our senators and members of the House supposed to deal with complicated, sophisticated cyber issues when they don't have even personal experience, many of them, doing basic things like using Google and sending emails. And I'm not exaggerating there. It's a real issue. And you saw it come up in some of the hearings last year. I think you're talking about the Senate and the House, but it's, I've also seen the same issue with boards, boardrooms, right? Yeah. Boards of directors who need to get familiar with the technology as well. And it, it hits a larger issue that I think you, you saw firsthand. I remember after the OPM hack, Three times the president tried to convene the cabinet to discuss it. And the first two times, you know, they, like the attorney general sent me and the chief information officer as the tech experts. The third time, uh, Lisa Monaco was the Homeland Security Advisor at the time. And the chief of staff, Dennis McDonough, had to send a, a stern email that said, listen, you can bring whoever you want, but you have to come to this meeting because as the cabinet secretary, you're ultimately responsible and this isn't a technical issue. This is a policy call about what type of risk that you want to accept. And you need to understand it well enough to make that policy call. And for a while, I think it was you know, the ghetto of the geeks <laughs> so that people were too afraid to talk about it. Is that your next book title? <laughs> ghetto of the geeks. Look, I, I talked about this a lot. I wrote one op-ed in the first couple of years in office where I talked about this issue from the corporate side that it's not just Congress. The members of the C-suites thought that, a, that any cyber threat, that was something for the geeks. That was something for the sort of IT people. And they didn't think of it, as you say, in government, it's a matter of policy. For companies, it's a matter of corporate governance. And it's a matter of risk. In the same way that competition is risk. In the same way that regulation is risk. In the same way, depending on, your kind of, on the kind of company you run, you know, climate change may be and other things may be. And they were in part because of, out of ignorance or fear of trying to understand complicated things. They were leaving it to people way down in the food chain who, even if they were sounding the alarm, nobody cared because it wasn't the CEO. And then the second problem from a spending perspective is, you know, no company likes to spend a lot of money. Well, this is changing a little bit. No company likes to spend a lot of money on something that is no profit center. So they were not prepared to invest in things that would make them less vulnerable, literally to existential threats. And some companies have gone out of business because of it. 
One of the first big government reviews as to how safe our military was against cyber attack was because President Reagan saw the movie War Games. <laughs> and then he went and asked, can this happen here? And the answer, you know, they went, they looked, they studied. And the answer was, uh, yes, it could, which caused really the first major push in government. And then secondly, the word cyber itself, you know, comes from a science fiction book. The whole way we talk about it was because William Gibson imagined when he saw a bunch of kids playing in an arcade and he watched the way their eyes were on the screen. This was in the 80s and it just seemed like they were entirely living in the world. And he thought, this is really a new type of space, cyberspace, where they're living. And then envisioned a world where we became more dependent on it and disrupting that would cause real harm. So the ability to, to tell these stories in a convincing way that cuts across line, I think will be key to solving them. I do think the message is starting to resonate, at least in C-suites, that this isn't a more traditional area of risk management, although it's still very new. A lot of them revolve around the privacy of information. And what I'm worried about increasingly, that's still an issue, but it's not so much that people steal your credit card information or social security number, for one thing they already have. I'm worried about the integrity of data so that you know, the financial information we rely on gets changed. That would have devastating effects. And I'm worried about the actual disruptive attacks that end the ability of a business to function like what almost happened and did happen for a period of time when NotPetya hit large multinational companies. John Carlin, thank you for your work. Thank you for your service. Congratulations on your book. Everyone should go buy it. It's Dawn of the Code War. Not Cold War. Code War. Thanks for being on the show, sir. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, John Carlin. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Barube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. <laughs>